Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Over the years, there have been more than a few units of the national park system that have been head scratchers. Why were they added? What redeeming value did they bring to the park system? This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. James Reidenauer, who was director of the National Park Service from 1989 through 1993, was well familiar with these units. As he once put it, I am in complete agreement that the National Park Service has units that are unworthy of National Park Service status. That was my motive for coining the term thinning of the blood. Members of Congress trade votes to get their local favorite on the NPS teat, usually to attract tourists. Then they don't add money to the budget to run these units. So you have two things. You thin the quality of the system, and you thin the ability of the National Park Service to run the system. We're going to explore some of these units, at least some of the ones that were pushed out of the National Park System, with none other than Traveler Professor Emeritus Dr. Robert Janeski. Bob was the one who, quite some years ago, started the Pruning the Park series on the Traveler, and we've momentarily pried him out of his retirement to discuss some of these parks with us. We'll be back in a minute with Bob after a short break. With Interior Federal Credit Union, you can rest assured your funds are safe. Credit unions are insured by the National Credit Union Administration, the NCUA, which means that your accounts have insurance up to $250,000. Our members haven't lost a penny of insured funds. Stay protected and join today at interiorfcu.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Professor, welcome back to The Travelers. Great to have you. It's a pleasure, Kurt. Thanks for inviting me. So, you know, as I mentioned in my introduction, you know, some years ago, you started this Pruning the Park series on the Traveler that um, was fascinating if you're into national park history. And I think if you're just even the, the casual park traveler, um, you would find the stories interesting. What, what prompted you to start that series? Do you recall? I think if somebody questioned uh, about a particular park, why aren't you reporting on, you know, this or that park unit in an I replied that it was uh, abolished, and then the question was, well, why? <laughs> why don't we know about that? So uh, I think I discussed with you the idea of doing a series, since there were so many, over two dozen. Yeah, and, and some of them um, were obvious that they, they just didn't measure up to, to National Park quality, as, as James Ridenauer would, would put it. Um, and then there were some others that uh, 
sadly um, lost the very redeeming values that um, gained them national park status to, to begin with. So let's go through some of these. And um, why don't we start with Mackinac National Park? And um, the way you look at Mackinac, it actually sounds like you should pronounce it as Mackinac, but um, that's just my own problem with pronunciations. But what, what can you tell us about Mackinac National Park? First of all, about that sea, uh, I'm from Michigan. It's always pronounced Mackinac, no matter how it's spelled. So Mackinac Straits, Mackinac Bridge, Mackinac Island, all spelled C, but pronounced with the W. Anyway, Mackinac Island by the uh, late 1800s was a popular attraction, summer attraction. And uh, naturally, they wanted more visitors and more money. So they got the bright idea, well, let's let the federal government get in here and declare you know, a, a national park, make it a national park. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll profit from, in other words, it was a clear example of promoting tourism using federal resources. It was easy, easy peasy. 1875, you had, you had a, a fort there, an army fort, Fort Mackinac. You just let the soldiers be the park rangers. You give them no budget, just permission to trails and some of this. Allah, you've got it. Um, the army even said, okay, we'll use it for military training if need be, and so on and so on. But by 1895, uh, the state of Michigan just said, look, let's, uh, let's make this a state park. You transfer it to us, and, and we'll take care of it from here. So the army was uh, more or less glad to get rid of it. So backing up a little bit, um, you said it was a, a tourism um, draw. Was it kind of like um, Michigan's Cape Cod? <laughs> Mackinac Island, a nice summering place? Yeah, you would go there uh, with your family and you'd relax in one of the inns and uh, enjoy the uh, cool air coming off of Lake Huron. And uh, as time went by, you got better and better uh, facilities, like the Grand Hotel was there by the late 1800s, 1890s. And uh, it was nationally known, not just in the state of Michigan, nationally known as a place where, especially People of means, you know, the wealthy people would go there to, uh, for summer relaxation. Now, what's interesting, um, it was the second national park established in the country after Yellowstone. That's right. Uh, you had Yellowstone in 1872, and just three years later, on uh, March 3rd, 1875, Mackinac National Park is, uh, is, is, is established. Yeah. You know, there's no national park system. There's no national park service. Yeah, we're just in the infant stages of developing what would later become the national park system. Yeah, yeah. Now, along with being a, a tourism draw, um, the island has some really great history. No, I mean the the French prize the site, and uh, uh, John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company um, played a role there. Used the island as a as a depot, as I understand. Yeah, it was a strategic location for moving up the lakes and into the rivers where the, uh, you know, the fur bears were, especially beaver. And uh, so it was a, uh, uh, a place where uh, it was logical to uh, have a settlement and uh, for uh, military purposes, uh, put a garrison, you know, permanently garrison it. So, yeah, for a very long time, going back to the uh, Trapper era, um, it was recognized as a as a hub location. Yeah, no, it just sounds beautiful 
also with, you know, limestone formations, caves, old growth forests, pine, cedar, oak, um, wildflowers, dramatic bluffs, and of course, you know, Lake Huron. Was it just the fact that the, the army pulled out and so there was no budget for it that uh, the, the state took it back? The state of Michigan did not profit much from having the army in charge of it. The army had no budget to support Mackinac National Park, but the state wanted more facilities there, more things that would make it easy for visitors to come there and enjoy it. And if the feds weren't going to do it, by golly, they would do it themselves. So it was Michigan's very first national park. Excuse me, state park. State park, yeah. How's it going today? Oh, Mackinac Island is is a world-class resort, summer resort. And, of course, it has a permanent population, too. But uh, as a a place where people can go and find a wide range of high-quality amenities, uh, it's it's a super attraction. Sounds like a great place to go visit. I've been there many times. <laughs> now let's let's uh, move um, south from Michigan, um, quite a ways south. Let's go down to Arizona and uh, Papago Saguaro National Monument, designated on January thirty first, nineteen fourteen. No longer a unit of the national park system. What's what's the story there? Yeah, it was abolished in uh, April of nineteen thirty. Uh, this national monument was close to Phoenix, Tempe, Scottsdale. There was a good population there. It was nationally significant uh, for biological resources, desert resources, geological, archaeological, scenic, recreational. All the you know all the boxes were checked. What happened was the they didn't provide any protection for it. Not even basic preservation and management. I mean. Cattle grazing, vandalism, poaching, uh, saguaro theft, all of that. And as the property was degraded, the state and the feds agreed that it would be better protected if it were state-owned. And so the various uh, parts of it were transformed to or, or transferred over to the Arizona National Guard who used part of it for a rifle range, the city of Tempe. Uh, the city of Phoenix, the Salt River Project, all of them had a hand in the future development of it. The interesting thing is uh, Papago Park, which is uh, nearly uh, two square miles, and uh, Tempe Papago, Papago Park were very nicely developed. I mean, the Phoenix Zoo is there, a magnificent desert botanical garden, baseball fields, uh, golf course. It's a high-quality recreational attraction today, preserving both cultural, historical, and natural resources. Well, let me ask you a tough question, um, and I don't, I'm not sure there's an answer. Maybe there's an obvious answer, but you know, we we talked about Mackinac, and you know, there just wasn't the the, the federal dollars to maintain it. We just talked about Papago and the the vandalism and the poaching and the the theft that was going on there. And so, you know, the the feds turned it back to the state. You had much the same thing going on at Yellowstone. There was poaching. There was theft. Yeah, the uh, doing the patrolling. Yeah. But there was never any discussion of turning it back over to Wyoming, Montana, or Idaho. Yeah, the size and quality of the resource was an issue. I mean a factor there for sure. Mackinac and Papago had nice 
resources, but they were no near the quality and uniqueness of the resources at Yellowstone. It's all in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> well, yeah, but objectively, you could see, you know, you could go in and find Yellowstone, amazing geological and, and scenic uh, attractions. Uh, just, just awesome, one of a kind in the world. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's let's bounce back north up into to Montana. Um, you know, today you look out across the national park system, and there's quite a few caves. You got Mammoth Cave, you got Crystal Cave. There are other caves that um, escape me at the moment, but Lewis and Clark Cavern National Monument um, dates to 1908, but it didn't survive terribly long. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt proclaimed in 1908, as he did a lot of other uh, parks and park units, and it was eventually abolished in 1937. The why of it, the why of the uh, development of that thing, uh, is rooted in the Northern Pacific Railroad, which donated the land to the federal government as a preserve. The cavern was arguably a site that belonged in the park system, uh, although many fine parks that are not. What happened here was it never got the monetary or the political support that you needed to develop and manage it uh, as a viable unit. Um, if you wanted to get there, Kurt, you went first by rail, Northern Pacific, then you had five miles to go. You had a really crummy road. And then when you got to, the, to that point, a 45-minute uphill trek on a lousy trail, and that brought you to the site of the cave. And when you Looked inside, you found a place that had no lighting, unprotected and dangerous kinds of traverses. No guides were going to be there to help you. So what ended up was uh, <laughs> you had only adventuresome people who were going there, just a few uh, hardy, adventuresome people. In 1941, the property was transferred to the state of Montana at Montana's request. Uh, had it been provided with the access uh, it required, and had it been developed as a public cave with the various things necessary for visitor safety and enjoyment, uh, I think that thing would still be, um, arguably, a national park unit. But uh, as it turned out, uh, the state of Montana figured that the feds were not coming through with the kind of uh, management that would be necessary to make it a, a, a you know, a tourist attraction and so on. And so they just uh, took it over and made it a state park, their first state park. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, um, you know, some of the problems that you mentioned with bootstrapping, as it were, um, Lewis and Clark Cavern um, to make it better and, and more worthy of national park status. You know, you look at Wind Cave National Park, and, you know, it had some of the similar issues with, you know, two cowboys founded, and, you know, there were efforts to to lead tours, you know, um, commercial tours and whatnot. And I guess, you know, and, until, until the state really um, wanted to see it turned into a national park, you wonder how many of these places, you know, if the political currents went the different way, would not be part of the national park system now or would be part of the national park system now. You need strong political support for the uh, persistence of a, of a park unit 
whose existence might be questionable, you know, where you have uh, some good reason to argue it should be abolished. Um, if you've got an influential elected official who is championing uh, the unit, it's more likely to survive, not necessarily forever, but longer. In the case of some of these parks, they simply did not have the kind of uh, champion that would have been needed to uh, to get uh, to get them over the hump, so to speak. It's really interesting when you when you look out across the the park system and and how many units were added because you had that that champion. We're talking today with uh, Professor Bob Janeski, um, who some years ago for the National Parks Traveler started a series on pruning the parks, um, a series of stories that looked at units of the park system that are no more part of the National Park System. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. We're back now with uh, Professor Bob Janeski talking about uh, units of the park system, national park system, that were removed from the national park system. Uh, Professor, down in Colorado, um, there's quite a famous place geographically and geologically um, that once was part of the national park system, which once had incredible national attention thanks to the the artistry of Thomas Moran, who of course put uh, Yellowstone National Park on the, the map, helped put it on the map with his gorgeous paintings. And then the, the photographer William Henry Jackson, whose photos uh, were splashed across the country. Holy Cross National Monument. It used to be a national monument uh, in the park system. Why, why, why is it no more? Yeah, it was in ski country there near Vail, proclaimed in, uh, by Herbert Hoover in 1929, initially given to the Forest Service. It was transferred to the National Park System in 1933 during the Reorganization Act. It uh, eventually was uh, stripped of its National Monument designation and it was removed from the National Park. Uh, park system and given back to the Forest Service. Well, basically, it was neglected, little money, a few small improvements, high cost of staffing, damage. Um, you had a big QOR, a big deep gully avalanche chute running in the vertical, and a ledge in the horizontal to make that cross that was so attractive 
to people who kind of did a pilgrimage because they believed that uh, it supported the idea of Christianity de uh, developing in the area, westward movement of uh, civilized <laughs> society and so on. Hmm. But uh, again, the, the damage, the high cost of the staffing and the declining visitation uh, did it end. You just couldn't justify spending any more money and political capital on it. So it just uh, kind of withered on the system. And by 1915, we got excited when we just gave it back to the U.S. Forest Service. So it's in a, in a U.S. forest. You can visit it and enjoy it, but you're not going to see a national park unit. Hmm. Hmm. Has it done well under the Park Service? Do you know? You mean under the Forest Service? Forest Service, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll have to say I don't know. I know a lot of people view it as to whether you can attribute that visitation to uh, just interest on the part of people out there for skiing and so on, or whether the thing is an attraction of itself. It's a, it's a, an adjunct to skiing and sightseeing in that location. Yeah, yeah. In other words, not a primary destination. But still, I mean, it's it's got much better access than it did back in the 1930s and 40s. Very true. Yeah. Let's go back north to um, Shoshone Cavern National Monument in Wyoming, um, another cave unit. Um, I love cave units, um, wind cave, jewel cave. Um, I, I've gone on a wild cave tour at uh, Mammoth Cave National Park and uh, would like to go on one at some of these other parks. What happened to Shoshone Cavern, Shoshone Cavern? When you look at that site today, and it, it's a BLM property now, you find a blocked entrance road, even a blocked gate there at the cave entrance. And a lot of people would wonder, what happened? Well, the site existed as a park unit for 46 years. I mean, it was proclaimed in 1909 and didn't get abolished until uh, 1954. And by that time, the city of Cody, you know, a major eastern entrance to uh, Yellowstone, had already uh, owned the property, had already been transferred to the city of Cody. It, uh, the monument became part of the national park system when the Burlington Railroad wanted the feds to um, create and, and facilitate visitation to a major tourist attraction. What you had was uh, a, uh, a cave that was not a spectacular resource like Carlsbad. Mm -hmm. It was more of a, a minor attraction. And the Park Service didn't see justification for squeezing um, development and management into a, a tight budget. You know, you point to it as arduous and dangerous to get there. And when you visit it, you don't come away with the feeling that the, uh, the experience was uh, an uh, you know, it was worth the effort. The park wasn't even opened for public use until decades after it was established. It was hmm. very clear that uh, you had to be physically fit and adventuresome and someone to go there. Very few people did that. And few people, by the way, worried that it required federal protection because there was very messing around with it. So, so here we have it. You don't spend money on it. You don't open it to the public. You just wait until you can quietly delist it. And meanwhile, in the background, 
is local opposition to federal government control of land and resources in the state of Wyoming. It was linked to all that fupderall about the creation of Grand Teton National Park. Mm-hmm. And you recall the state of Wyoming eventually got so angry about the feds moving in there that they got a firm uh, promise, um, uh, written promise, that no national monuments would be created there, proclaimed there, except by state permission. And so here we've got a resource that was uh, awfully neglected. Eventually, the idea of having that as a federal holding was just not sensible. It's one of those cases where, as I said, it just they waited until an optimum time to just quietly delist it. It's the best way to explain it in 1951. Oh, I'm wondering, though, was... Um... The state of Wyoming behind the original designation of it? The original, you mean establishment of it as a, as a yeah. national park system unit? Yeah. Uh, like every, not every, but a lot of attractions in the West, the railroad had a big, you know, had a big hand in it. The Burlington Railroad wanted the feds to uh, manage and publicize a tourist attraction that would bring more people to that locale on Burlington Rail Track. And those railroads, those Western railroads, had a lot of um, a lot of clout. They owned the land that could be donated, say, to the Fed. Say, we'll give you this at no cost if you'll develop it. So, not having to pay acquisition costs is a, a big bargaining point these railroads had yeah yeah but still i mean yellowstone wasn't that far away from shoshone cavern you think you think that would have been a big enough draw for burlington for those railroads it was never enough yeah yeah you ask them what they want and they they just say more you know i i know there's a lot of people today who would like to see the railroads get back onto the national park bandwagon and and return some of these rail lines that uh went for instance from salt lake up to yellowstone west yellowstone or, or down to bryce canyon or or many other parks that were serviced by railroads um yeah, it wasn't uh, just uh, access it was a grand way to travel absolutely absolutely those days are gone and not forgotten no no you know, I think the first abolished unit of the park system that I stumbled upon in my career was Fossil Cycad National Monument in South Dakota. What an incredible story of vandalism. And what an incredibly sad story. Yeah. Um, Harding, President Harding established that uh, as a national park holding in 1922 by proclamation, okay? And it ended up being turned over to the BLM in 1957. So it actually existed for 35 years. But for most of that time, it had already lost the, the resources that had made it logical to, to preserve the site. What happened there with these fossil cycads, it was kind of a palm or fern-like plant that not related to ferns or palms, but kind of remind you when you look at it. There were lots of them on the surface there. 
And they were highly attractive for scientific value, but also to collectors. Mm -hmm. So what then became inevitable with no protection for the place, no protection provided, the collectors got in there. And just by the time the feds got around to actually arranging to manage the site, the complete lack of protection there had already allowed illegal collectors, almost all illegal, to completely strip the site of the surface fossils. Wow. Now, you still had underground fossils that were worth protecting. And so what happened was in um, 1957, when the site was turned over to the Bureau of Land Management, it was with the understanding that it would not be transferred, that it would be land that was to be protected from uh, damage because of its underground, you know, not in the Dakota sand, in the Dakota sandstone, but underground. When you go there today, it's really sad because the half square mile site is leased out for grazing. Huh. There's a road running through the middle of it, dividing north and south. And you can't even tell that a national park unit ever existed there. Huh. Um, it's, it's one of those stories that you point to as, a, as a, an example of what happens to high quality, nationally significant resources when you don't protect them. Establishing yeah. or proclaiming is step one. But if you don't take care of it, and if you don't provide means by which the public can visit safely and without damage to the resources, this is what can happen. Yeah, and what's what's sad to, to say is is the Park Service continues to battle poaching and vandalism in, in various units. I know down at Saguaro National Park in Arizona, um, they actually embed some trackers into some of the big saguaros because there's a market out there for a nice saguaro. Yeah, they're worth thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's incredible. It takes centuries to replace the really big ones. Yeah. We've been talking today with uh, Professor Bob Janeski, who um, some years ago started the Pruning the Parks series on the National Parks Traveler, a series of stories looking at units um, that once were part of the National Park System but are no longer part of the park system. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. 
So, Professor, um, let, let's move to the East Coast. We've been spending a lot of time in, in the West. And let's go down to Florida. Mar-a-Lago National Historic Site. I mean, there's, I don't know, there's probably not that many mansions that were included in the national park system. What, what can you tell us about Mar-a-Lago? Mar-a-Lago uh, was established as a park unit in uh, October of 1972. The Secretary of the Interior um, got it and then gave it to the Park Service to manage. And what they were managing is an incredible property. Marjorie Merriweather Post, one of the, perhaps the richest woman in America. Four marriages, her second one was to uh, E.F. Hutton, the E.F. Hutton. Hmm. And with his help, they managed to establish General Foods and a whole bunch of other highly successful companies. This was a woman of means. And she had this idea that if you took a property of 20 acres uh, out there in Palm Beach Island, you could create a man that had the potential to become the most lavish entertainment place for the winter wealthy uh, who came down there. She, she was basically saying, okay, I'm not just going to build this thing, this 62,000 500 square foot mansion with 115 rooms just to show people I've got cash, but also to make it the place to party in Florida. If you want, you know, if you were invited there, you were sort of implying you are in the who's who of American elite. So people were ecstatic to be included in that winter social season series of events that occurred at Mar-a-Lago, which is Sea to Lake in Spanish. It mm. was without question one of America's most luxurious private places, Hearst Castle, Biltmore State, and that league. Now, when she died, her will transferred the estate to the federal government with the intention that it be used as a diplomatic presidential retreat. It became a National Register of Historic Places property in 1972. What the problem for the Park Service was, it was a gift that they couldn't really afford to keep. Mm -hmm. expensive. And just as with some other kinds of units, uh, the upkeep became such a burden that they were very, very happy to get rid of it when Congress allowed the return of the estate to the Post Foundation in 1980, and they just took it off the books. Hmm. So it was just too darn expensive to maintain this property the way it was intended to be maintained. Sounds phenomenal. Sounds just phenomenal. I mean, 62,000 square feet. That's a bit over 62, five. Yeah. 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 115 115 rooms. rooms. Yep. Incredible. Incredible. Let's move up the coast a little bit um, into Georgia. And uh, once upon a time, we had the Atlanta campaign national historic site. It wasn't just one site though, was it? No, it was a bunch of 
uh, sites with markers and kiosks uh, along the Atlanta campaign trail that, uh, that uh, General Sherman uh, was in charge of from the Chattanooga area all the way down to Atlanta. And no question that this was an extremely important Civil War attraction, shall we say, because when Atlanta finally fell to Sherman's troops, it was a key factor in the re-election of Abe Lincoln in the fall of 1864. Um, historians will argue that without that, without the taking of Atlanta, then McClellan might very well have defeated um, Lincoln and allowed for a very different end to the, uh, to the war. It was not a national quality resource. Uh, it was a thing put together, a collection of sites put together specifically as a, a tourist attraction. And eventually uh, it, the argument that it should be a state facility, a state park, uh, one out. Was this a, a, a long drive that connected all these sites? No, it's actually not a very long drive. Um, it, and there are a lot of high quality sites along the way. Uh, battlefields uh, that uh, have been very well developed for visitor use. And anybody who takes that trail and who knows about the significance of that campaign comes away with a much better understanding of its strategic uh, significance because they are so close together. Hmm. But we're fought over so bitterly, very, very costly in uh, material and human lives. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like a, a fascinating slice of American history. And, you know, you can look elsewhere in the national park system where you've got, uh, I don't know, maybe disjointed units of a park that, that nevertheless are still within the national park system. Um, I, w- I wonder why this one just never really flourished. Um, that's You make a good point. But the, the really big trails uh, the that are... Uh, connecting national park system managed units. Uh, they're 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 lengthier. Trail of Tears, you know, Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, this was one that was confined totally within this within the state of Georgia, and uh, was uh, I think for this reason uh, not as well known, not as heavily publicized as uh, as those others yeah hmm. interesting you know we, we've talked about um the political influences that can either bring a, a unit into the national park system or, or cast it out of the national park system platt national park interesting uh, example of the political whims that can influence the national park system when i wrote that article in the pruning the parks collection I got some of the most, uh, I won't say vicious, but but I got some comments following it that were very heated and, frankly, to me, derogatory. They really raked me over the coals for it. Platt National Park has a distinction of existing for 70 years, 70 years in the park system, and then demoted no longer bearing that 
highly significant two words, National Park, in the title of the holding. Mm -hmm. And even though it did not disappear from the federal system, it was folded into Chickasaw National Recreation Area. It was no longer a national park in the state of Oklahoma. So locals who had thought, okay, we've got one of the crown jewels in the system, now thought it had been taken away. So it's a good example here of, of a state that wanted to hang on to that designation because they viewed it as, uh, as a, a declaration of this as a very high quality resort, excuse me, resource, uh, fully deserving of being included in the same discussion with what is now, what, 63, I think, national parks out of the 460-some units. Yeah. Very angry. But it, was, it um, wasn't that large. No, the initial site was called the Sulphur Springs Reservation. Um, yeah. You had basically half a square mile when the reservation was, was designated in 1902. And when in 1906... They took the Sulphur Springs Reservation, that less than a square mile, and renamed it Platte National Park. It was a it stayed that way, National Park, until 47 years ago today. That property, Platte National Park, was folded into Chickasaw National Recreation Area. The timing of that is uh, crucial. Because in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the National Park Service was heavily involved in a sort of bring the parks to the people initiative where you would invest more effort in the saving of cultural and historical and natural resources in and close to cities, make them easy to get to and well-developed for uh, for visitor use. Uh, this would make a lot of friends for the National Park Service. It would address some problems that were pretty serious at that time with riots in the late, late 1960s in the city, violence breaking out with sort of urban unrest being something that was addressed uh, in a wide framework of, of uh, federal initiatives. and. And that at that time, the fact that this place, Platte National Park and, and Chickasaw, were heavily visited. I mean, by 1949, you had over a million people a year coming mm -hmm. there. You had it was a case where you had uh, the National Park Service pointing to work that had been done in the 1930s by the Civilian Conservation Corps and others that have provided it with all kinds of really nice improvements, uh, bridges and trails and all kinds of neat things. And what the problem was, there was just a, not enough political clout to keep it in the uh, Park Service as a full-blown national park named unit. And at that time, again, the timing of it, the existence of some really big you know, really prominent national recreation areas, uh, Golden Gate on the West Coast, uh, for example, made it much more 
logical to fold plat into the national recreation and mm -hmm. no longer keep it as a national park named unit. As I said, boy, did that ever ignite a, a bunch of local anger. Well, and what, what's interesting, I mean, there's lots of interesting aspects about this, but the, the park was named not for the Platte River, not for an Oklahoma politician, but for a senator from Connecticut. Yeah. Orville Hitchcock Platte. Uh, he was a good one. Uh, he, he, his name is associated with a lot of important legislation and activities. And he was the one that had the idea of protecting the uh, a site very important to Cherokee and Choctaw Indians, that Sulphur Springs area. If you were to designate that as a national park, surely it would get the money and the political support to protect the, uh, the basic resources, those health-giving Sulphur Springs and related, uh, related uh, attractions. So yeah, his name is associated with the park because he was the one who initiated the uh, idea of the federal government protecting uh, Sulphur Springs. Well, Professor, it's been a, a wonderful walk through National Park System history um, today. And, and of course, there's many other units um, that were decommissioned from the park system. And, and maybe we'll revisit down the road to touch on some of those. But um, yeah, it's really a fascinating history as much as um, as fascinating as the creation of park system units are, the, the decommissioning of park system units and the reasons behind are, are equally interesting. Yeah, I think so. And uh, if you look for themes uh, running through, you can see that a lot of the problems we're having today are rooted in things that happened in some cases here well over a century ago, and we still have them today. And we still yeah. have people arguing for some parks to be abolished, like the First Lady's uh, National Historic Site in, uh, in Ohio. Kenton, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today, Professor. We'll catch up down the road. Thank you very kindly. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about units of the National Park System that have been cast out, go to nationalparkstraveler.org and enter Pruning the Parks into the search engine. Next week... We're going to kick back and dream about some of the wonderful meals you can find in the national parks. Our guest will be Linda Lee, whose latest book is The National Parks Cookbook. I think our talk will leave you a little hungry. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. 
Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.